added on, you need a few of the words, but it's not going to catch fire unless you have the breath of the Spirit to do. Lord Jesus, I pray that um, as we come, perhaps kind of tired embers, weary from the week, that as um, the fuel of your word is added to us, that you will breathe upon it, that you'll take the words Ali shares and ignite something in our hearts again this morning. Amen. 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 Great. You can multitask, which is good. So I was praying whilst moving moving things around, because you can pray whilst doing things. Um, it's fantastic to be together. This is a very wobbly stand, but I'm hoping that's not going to suddenly clap something. Um, so, and we are starting a series in Hosea today, which is exciting. It's exciting. It's very odd as well, because we've got like, I don't know, can we, it's, I don't know, can at least some people move slightly further forwards, because it feels very strange having people so far back. And it's not everyone does, but just a few people in these rows would be nice. Because um, <laughs> we're relatively low numbers, so it'd be nice. Thank you. That's, that's perfect. <laughs> 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 God, um, and so if, you, if you've got a Bible, turn, turn to us there. We're, we're not actually going to start reading it for a, for a bit. Um, we've got some introductory stuff to talk about first. But Hosea, if you don't know where it is, is up to Daniel. They're both quite big books uh, before you get to all the little little books, which is really hard to find, uh, which is what's, what's where. So we're in Hosea chapter 1 today. Uh, before we before I start preaching, just a, a couple of things. First of all, uh, in a few weeks' time, um, as you'll know, we've got our church fun day, which is very exciting, uh, on the 10th of June. And um, thanks to everyone who's, who's signed up. Please keep signing up. Please keep praying. Um, but I just wanted to, yes, we want people to sign up to fill the slot, which is important, so we can actually do it practically. But just a reminder of why we're doing it. We're doing it because we want to see God do an amazing thing in that community. We want, to, we want the Holy Spirit to come and transform lives. And maybe on the day, uh, as people have conversations with people, people might be saved. That'd be amazing. Uh, but certainly we're trusting and praying that there'll be some relationships, some connections God's going to open up through that. And I was meeting with a few leaders from another church uh, on Friday, and um, we shared things to pray for, and I shared about the fun day, and one of them had a prophetic word. He said, it's not a fun day, it's a fire and smoke day. So that's cool. So maybe we can change, change the flyers, Jenny, get new flyers up. Uh, <laughs> fire and smoke day. Um, and by that, uh, he means, he, he, he meant, uh, like, Holy Spirit comes in fire, um, but it's an ongoing, am I going on and off a bit? Yes. Am I going on? Yeah. Okay. Can I go back on? Or not? Do I need to change mics at all? Um, <laughs> that the smoke is kind of the ongoing impact. The fire will be fire, but smoke goes on for a long time. Um, and we want to see, that's what we want to see through this fund. So maybe that will help, help us in our prayers. We're praying for it. It's going to be fire and smoke. They Holy Spirit, come in fire. And let the smoke of your presence, let it go on the inner uh, and be um, experienced long after that day. And the other thing is... Uh, Emmanuel Church, who are um, our closest church in our region beyond family, uh, and we were planted out of um, several years ago. Uh, they, today's a big day for them, so I just want to pray for them. Today they're moving into the Emmanuel Centre with their new building, um, just opposite where they're currently based, uh, and it's a big step in their journey with God. So I'm just going to pray a blessing on them as they meet today and as they move forward. Father, we thank you so much for Emmanuel. We thank you for what you're doing uh, in them as a church community, and Lord, we pray your ongoing blessing. We pray that you would grow them and expand them in spiritual um, in spiritual maturity, and also that many, many would be reached for the gospel through what they do. As they make this step of faith into this new building, we thank you for your provision, and we pray for ongoing, uh, amazing exploits of your spirit through them as a church community. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Great. 
So if I asked you what biblical images come to mind uh, to describe God, I wonder what you'd say. There's a whole load of them in the Old Testament and the New, New Testament. Let's just start with the Old Testament. Uh, God is a rock. God is a lion. God is a nursing mother. God is a shepherd. God's a strong tower. God's a rushing wind. God's a captain of an army. All sorts of images that we're given in the Bible for who God is. But there are two that stand out above them all because of their prevalence and frequency. One is God as Father. And of course, Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven. That is kind of a foundational picture of who our God is. He is Father. And that's one we probably know. We use it in our prayers sometimes. It comes up quite regularly. But the other one maybe is something we think about and talk about less often. And that is God as our lover, as our husband, as our bridegroom. I don't know how much you pray to God as husband. It's a bit weird if you're a man. But, but he, is, he is our bridegroom. I don't know how much you think about that in your mind, that he is your lover. Because if we think about biblical pictures for the church... Again, we could think of all sorts of images. The church is uh, the, the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is the family of God. The church is an army. But also, the church is the bride of God and the bride of Christ, specifically. God is the bridegroom. We are the bride. It's a powerful image. And it's something that we're going to be dwelling on today, but we're going to be dwelling on as we go through this series in Hosea. So it's not just periphery to the story of the Bible, it is a central theme running through the story of the Bible. One pastor guy called Ray Altman says this, he says, marriage is the wraparound concept for the entire Bible. The Bible is telling a story of married romance. God has always existed as Trinity. I don't know, do you mind just shutting the doors? Someone, because um, it might not pay anyone else off when he put me off as I'm trying to, I'm trying to speak. Um, kids, shouting. Um, it's great they're having fun, but I can't focus. So God has always existed as, as God has always existed as Trinity. His Father, Son, and Spirit in this perfect relationship of love, and the world was created out of the overflow of that Trinitarian love. We could put it this way. That God, created, God the Father, created the world that he might give his son a spouse that his love might overflow to another. Or we could, put, we could put the story of the Bible in this way. The story is the story of the father taking a spouse for his son and seeing them married. That's a bit, there's all sorts of themes you can trace through the Bible. That is one way you can trace through the story of the Bible. So it shouldn't surprise us that one of the very first things God creates when he creates the world is this thing called marriage between Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman. And he joined them together in one flesh. The Bible isn't starting off with this marriage concept, or very early on, right at the end of chapter 1, chapter 2, with this marriage concept just because it's a good institution for society, it is. Uh, marriage between a man and a woman is good for society. But actually he's doing it because this is an earthly picture, something we can see with our eyes, of the 
heavenly spiritual reality of the marriage between God the Son, the bridegroom, and his people, the brides. So he puts it front and center saying, I'm putting on display what I want my relationship between me and my people to be like. The early church leader makes this clear when he comments, um, a guy called Paul makes it clear, uh, this clear when he comments on Genesis 2 um, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, where he says this, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That sounds fine. But then he really twists it a bit and said, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This mystery of one flesh union between a man and a woman isn't ultimately about a man and a woman. It's about the, 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 the marriage between Christ and his church that the whole of creation is built around and is aiming towards. Any human marriage is only penultimate, pointing to the ultimate marriage between Christ and his church. So it's not that God saw marriage and thought, oh, that's quite a helpful illustration for my relationship with my people. It's the other way around. He, had, he wanted this relationship with his people. He created us for this relationship and he instituted marriage as a reflection of this eternal marriage that he has called us into. So the Bible story starts with an earthly wedding between a man and a woman, and how does it end? It ends with a heavenly wedding, the ultimate marriage between Christ and his church. Revelation 19 verse 7 says this, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb, that is Jesus, has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It's come. What creation's been waiting for and longing for, what the desires in every single human heart ultimately, even if they realise it or not, have been waiting for, are finally being fulfilled in this marriage supper of the Lamb. It is the great marriage to end all marriages. It's the marriage which every human marriage is just a tiny glimpse of, which we will one day experience if we put our trust in Jesus as we enter into the heavenly courts. Now, there might be some here who struggle with this concept of marriage, and marriage particularly uh, in this reflection of Christ in the church, maybe because of our own experiences. So there might be some people here who uh, either currently or in the past have experienced abusive marriages. I want to say to you that Jesus is your faithful spouse. He is your only truly satisfying spouse. He will never let you down and he will never fail you. Everything else, even good marriages, are a distortion of that. They're not a perfect reflection. There might be others here who um, are single and long for a spouse. You might be single and not long for a spouse, not every single person does, but there might be some who are single and long for a spouse. I want to say to you that Jesus is the only one who will truly satisfy you. And sometimes those longings are painful, I understand that way, but he is the only satisfying one. And actually, just as marriage paints a picture of the gospel, singleness also paints a picture of the gospel. Marriage shows us this, points us to this ultimate marriage between Christ and his church, but singleness uh, shows us that ultimately us, our longings can only be satisfied in Christ. Only Jesus is truly enough for us. 
And singleness is a gift which we need to which we need to embrace because it challenges those of us who are married, like myself, not to make our spouses the ultimate. Because they're not our ultimate spouse. Jesus is. And so whatever our kind of personal marital status is right now, I think this theme of biblical marriage speaks to us. It challenges us, but it massively encourages us and speaks to deep longings in all of our hearts that no spouse, even in a good marriage, can truly satisfy. So this great marriage between God and his people is a storyline throughout the whole Bible, but it comes up frequently in the Old Testament prophets. I think my favourite Old Testament verse on this theme is Isaiah 62, verse 5. I love it. It says this, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I'm going to say it again because I love it. As the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Now, some of us may have been bridegrooms, as I have. Others of us, or probably all of us, or my vast majority would have, would have seen a bridegroom standing in front of a church waiting for his bride to come in. And you don't generally see a face of indifference. You don't generally see someone, oh, take it or leave it, I just want to. It's an excitement. And as she comes in, you see some real joy. And you'd probably experience, if you were that man, heart thumping because of the delight and the joy of what you're entering into. That is how God feels about you. And I, in the past I thought it's a bit hard as a man. I don't find it hard as a man to, 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 to get into this image anymore because um, it's, it's obviously metaphorical and it's still it, the, the way it can, I can understand a bridegroom's love for his for his bride, and so that helps me to understand something of the amazing love of God for me as my bridegroom. You're not a just about acceptable peasant to God who says, All right, I'll let you in because. He loves, He has set His affections upon you, He has called you and chosen. relationship. He is calling you into this exclusive relationship with him. You make his heart sing. He really loves you and desires you. That's what this image of who God is speaks, speaks to us powerfully of. It speaks to us in a way that God as Father doesn't. That speaks in a different way. It speaks to us in a way that God as Shepherd doesn't. Or God as rock doesn't. These all speak to us in different ways. But God can take anything. In fact, God has created everything in this world to speak to us about him in some way. There's nothing in this world that can't tell us something of God. His God because he's put things in this world to display his glory, to display who he is. And so that's the first point. God loves you as a bridegroom loves his bride. But the second point is that we forsake the Lord like an adulterous wife. And that's where we move to Hosea chapter 1. Hosea is a challenging book. 
I'm going to put it up there, right at the center. It's not an easy read. There's a lot of strong words from God upon his people. First three chapters are relatively straightforward, uh, and then it gets a bit, <laughs> a bit more challenging. But it speaks to us powerfully about how we are unfaithful to God as our husband. So let's just start reading with, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, unsurprisingly, through chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom for forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibleim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. Uh, house of Jehu is a kind of synonym for the house of Israel in this context. We won't have time to go into the details of that, but that's just to let you know. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name, No Mercy, for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I won't save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, You are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. The first thing we discover from this chapter is that we forsake the Lord like an adulterous wife. The nation of Israel were God's people in the Old Testament. He had called them, he had chosen to be his, to be his special possession of all the peoples of the earth. He had called them into this exclusive covenant relationship, marriage relationship, if you like, with himself. And over the years, uh, the, the kingdom had divided, nation had divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which is now called Israel. It's a bit confusing because Israel, and one of the kingdoms is now called Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. Okay, so it's a, it's, that's where, where we see in those, in those kind of early verses, I think verse uh, four or something, where it says God's going to judge the nation of Israel because Hosea is speaking to the northern kingdom in about the 8th century BC. So he's speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel, and this is a declaration of judgment upon them. The southern kingdom of Judah, he says, are yet to be cast off. He's still, he's not going to uh, judge them, but he does a couple of centuries later because they go the same way as Israel. But at this point, he's talking to the, talking to the northern kingdom of Israel. And Israel was in trouble at this point in its history. Political trouble. The northern king, the, the kingdom of Assyria to the east was threatening them. This was growing a growing empire and was seriously threatening them. 
But the, the thing is, the problem with Israel is that they didn't realise what their problem was. Their true problem was. They thought it was political. And so they were trying political solutions like uh, an alliance with Egypt, um, as we find later on in chapter 7 of Hosea, or um, trying to kind of uh, appease Assyria through gifts and tributes and things like that. They thought they could get out of this political problem by political means. But it wasn't a political problem. God is saying through Hosea, your problem isn't political. Your problem is spiritual. Your problem is adultery. Your problem is you are going after other lovers rather than loving me. And that's why these political issues are coming up, because I'm bringing this nation of Assyria ultimately to bring judgment upon you, which is what happens um, a few decades later. Verse 2 says, the land commits great whoredom, great prostitution, great adultery, different translations of the word, by forsaking the Lord's. Imagine hearing that. In fact, don't just imagine it. Hear it. Because we need to hear it. Because I do that. And you do that. But Hosea doesn't just tell them about their spiritual adultery. It's uh, more provoking and more shocking that he is called by God to demonstrate to them their spiritual adultery. Verses 2 and 3. Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom. Notice the repetition. I think God's trying to get across a point here. By forsaking the Lord's. So he went and took Gomer, and she conceived and bore him a son. Hosea is called into a human marriage with a woman who either already is or will do, we don't know necessarily which way around, uh, with a woman who will commit adultery, who will 